Moving to Live is a podcast about movement and exercise. We bring you interviews with professionals in the movement and exercise field. The goal is to provide information for other professionals and also amateur movement aficionados, people who understand that movement is part of what makes life complete. Some of the people we interview you will have heard of. They're well-known in and outside of the movement and exercise profession. Others you may not have heard of, but they have a great deal of knowledge to share. Many people doing the best work spend their time working with people, not working on their social media presence. We're going to give you a chance to learn from some of these talented and knowledgeable individuals, and we're going to learn along with you. Moving to Live podcasts are going to be short. Each interview will be long enough to impart usable information, but short enough to be able to be consumed in a single bout, during your workout, commute, or even during dinner prep. We all like long-form interviews, but time is valuable. Moving to Live wants to give you the option to learn and be entertained without needing to commit 60 minutes at a time for an interview. Give Moving to Live a listen. Check out our sister podcast, FitLab PGH, which highlights people, businesses, events, and activities in the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area that make movement a priority. Moving to Live would love to hear from you. Want to connect with us or have an idea for somebody you think we ought to interview? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com, or connect with us on Instagram and Twitter, both underscore mov2liv. We're excited to bring you these interviews, and we think you'll enjoy each and every one that we bring you. Moving to Live and our sister podcast, FitLab PGH, firmly believe that movement should be treated as a lifestyle, not just an activity. A big hat tip to Sam Brassfield, who Moving to Live interviewed on an earlier podcast for introducing Moving to Live to Justin Matichek. Justin is the founder of Veterans Adventure Group. It's not therapy, but Justin has a great idea and a great message and a great project for introducing veterans to outdoor adventures, where it's not just a one-time deal, but it's something that they gain the skills and potentially the tools to continue to enjoy the outdoors and moving. If you like what Moving to Live is doing, breaking down knowledge silos and bringing you interviews with different people who make movement a priority, then leave us some feedback on whatever podcast app you listen to us on. Drop us a message by email or social media to let us know what you like, potentially offer suggestions for future interviews. Justin, I understand you just recently moved from Nashville, Tennessee to Salt Lake City, Utah. I'm always curious when people make big moves like that. I know I'm not from Pittsburgh. People ask me when I, when I meet them in Pittsburgh, like, well, why did you move here? And I say, job, why did you move from Nashville to Salt Lake City? Uh, I mean, it's Salt Lake City. The, the mountains are right outside. Um, I mean, I drive 10 minutes and I'm actually like in the mountains out of the city here. And uh, I've always wanted to live out west. I grew up in Minnesota. It was flat. It was really boring. And for some reason, it seems like a lot of these mountaineers come from flat parts of the country. And I'm kind of the same way. I, I see a, a hill or a mountain and all I can think is I want to be on top of that. And um, Salt Lake obviously is surrounded by that. And on top of that, I, um, I'm not as active as I used to be, but I do a lot of base jumping. And so uh, just south of here is Moab, Utah, which is a great place for base jumping. And every time I go there, it's almost like a spiritual experience. It's a weird, weird place in general. And then just north of here, in Idaho is the Prime Bridge, which is the only legal structure that you can base jump off of year-round. And so Salt Lake City is right in the middle of that. So it gives me a good uh, – I can go north or south and still kind of get around and do what I want to do. So, My favorite question I always like to ask guests for moving to live is you meet somebody in the elevator. You're wearing your Veterans Adventure Group T-shirt or baseball cap, but they say, what is that? What's your 30-second 30 30 elevator spiel for that? ultimately we build train and equip small teams of veterans to thrive in extreme environments and sports that's the gist of what we do our, our main goal is to build small teams of veterans train them in a specific activity give them the equipment they need to do the activity and we all want them to be local so that way this team can function fully self-sufficient after we work with them doing whatever it is we teach them to do so say it's scuba diving We'll get them certified, get them the equipment, and that way you got three to four people who can operate. Kind of in that fire team mentality from the military, outside of the military, do set kind of with activities centered around that activity. So. And correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I believe from what Sam said when I talked to him is the idea behind your nonprofit is you don't just have the veterans get together, work as a team, do an event. You're trying to equip them so they can continue to do that sort of activity long after they finish the specific event they initially trained for. 
That's correct. Yeah. Like a lot of nonprofits and not to hate on any nonprofit services, but a lot of them, they get a bunch of veterans together. You go, you have an amazing week, you know, and then you go back and you met people from all over the country. You learn some really cool stuff, but you come back and you don't have those people to do stuff with anymore. And you learn this cool activity, but you don't have the gear or maybe even the additional know-how to continue doing it. And I look at, you know, my time in the military and uh, there's a lot of stuff I really miss about the military. And one of those is that teamwork and operate in these environments that are extremely, uh, you know, dangerous or provoking. And these extreme sports put you back in that environment where the decisions you make matter and you have to rely on other people in, their t- in your team to do what they need to do for all of you to get through alive in many of these situations. And so it's almost bringing back the, the thing I enjoyed most about the military into civilian element. And that way, you know, if you look at veterans and a lot of issues to have, you know, you, you deploy with this group of guys and you get really close with them. In my case, I spent five years in the same unit. I was really close to a lot of them. And after I left the military, you lose all that. And now you're kind of starting over. So why not bring that back? You know, I'm sure you can't have the same guys you serve with in the military, but there's other people in your community that are, have similar desires. And if we can interlace that, that's, that's kind of our goal, you know. And we're going to talk more about that in a few minutes. I've found with Moving to Live, one of the best things is finding out the stories behind people, because I'm sure you didn't just wake up one morning and say, hey, this is important to me. I want to do it. So you mentioned you grew up in Minnesota. And I know I have the advantage of prior to interviewing you, I get you to fill out a very brief questionnaire. I like to call it my cheat sheet. And clearly you treat movement as a lifestyle, not just an activity. So growing up in Minnesota, were you one of those kids who was very active? And if you were, was it because mom and dad said, get the heck out of the house and don't come back? Or was it because mom and dad were active or you had older brothers or sisters and you kind of tagged along with them? So uh, it's a little bit of everything. So I actually grew up on a farm and I like to kind of equip my childhood to growing up Amish. I wasn't actually (laughs) Amish, but you would think that. Um, I'm very well known for my ability to eat pigeons as snacks because that's just what we had, you know. Um, but anyway, uh, you know, growing up on a farm, I actually was not able to be in any sports or stuff in school. Just, you know, when I was very young, I was expected to get a job and start working. And I was working for my brother at his hour shop. And um, my brother was big into jet skiing, had a stand-up jet ski. So that kind of got me into like this whole method of, you know, learn stand-up jet ski and how to get really good at that. And um, ultimately, my activities centered around, they weren't sport-related activities. They were just these little niches. I got really big into paintball. And there again, that's very active. And I wanted to be in the military. And um, at some point, like, again, I was not very big into sports like that. So, but at some point, I, I read this book, Ultra Marathon Man. And it just resonated with me. And one thing I'll never forget about that book is they showed a picture of the Boston Marathon on there and the elevation profile compared to the Western States 100. At this point, I didn't even know the Western States 100 miler like was a thing. And it pretty much just like made the Boston Marathon look like a joke. And um, I'm not saying it is, but compared to the Western States and the elevation profile, it was it, it, something about this. Like I, if I'm going to be a runner, that's the kind of runner I want to be, you know? And um, yeah, I read this book, and so just out of nowhere, I decided to get up and go and uh, sign up for the Grandma's Marathon, and that was right after I graduated, and it's kind of at a bad time, because two days after the marathon, I was leaving for basic training, so my recruiters were kind of like, dude, what are you doing right here? Like, you're going to show up to basic training and look like a soup sandwich, you know, and um, again, I, I did not have a running background in high school, but I, I showed up to run the race. I was the only only person out of thousands and thousands of people that wore pants because I didn't know any better. Um, I had my shoes that I got from Walmart. I didn't know a thing about it. And um, went out there and ran it. And actually, I didn't do too bad. Um, I can't remember my time. This was this was back in 2006. Um, I, I want to say it was under four hours. Um, it, it was a pretty respectable time, I think, for a first-time runner. And I remember kind of getting frustrated because there's two other kids in my class that were on the track team that the the local newspaper did a big story on talking about, you know, and, and actually not beating one of these kids like a big track star, you know. And, um, of course, there's never a mention of me in the newspaper or anything, but it's not that big a deal. But that kind of – that whole thing kind of got my mind like if 
I want to do something, I can go out and do it. And even in training up until then, I didn't know anything about running. Um, the farthest I ran in training was 14 miles. I kind of like to tell myself I wanted to be surprised and see how the rest of it kind of worked out, you know? Um, so yeah, that's kind of how I got into it. And then obviously in the military, you know, physical fitness is centered around everything you do, you know? So I think one of the things people often forget if they don't grow up on a farm, I also grew up on a farm is you get a lot of essentially base strength and fitness from doing whatever the work is that you have to do on a farm, even though it's not quote unquote officially training. Oh, for sure. Like moving hay bales and stuff like that. Oh, it was, I mean, growing up, I used to think it was the worst. I look back now and I'm like, goodness gracious, if I can move hay bales rather than throw on a sack of weights, I'd be, I'd be thrilled, you know, but, um, and even I remember as a kid, my elbows are actually kind of muscle bound. Like I can't lock my arms out because I'd have to carry these big five gallon buckets of water to go to the water, the cattle. And if I had my arms hang straight, it would drag on the ground and the water would spill. So I had to kind of like do like this little bit of a curl the entire time, just to like keep the water from spilling. And now as a result, my arms don't lock out. So, um, which has also became an issue in the military when I couldn't lock out my arms, you know, push up and having to explain them like it literally does not like my arms don't go straight. <laughs> so. And I think one of the interesting things of what you described, I've had a couple of people that I know professionally who talk about some of the various uh, extreme adventure sports where they're saying, so basically people are paying to do what somebody who grew up a fa- on a farm or did construction did and they got paid for. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of like when people pay to go through like a uh, boot camp experiences and stuff too. It's kind of like, why would you do that? But um, I think it's easier when you grew up doing it and then you can look back kind of on the crazy, but having not, you know, had I been in a different environment, I'm sure there'd be some sort of uh, allure to that. It, it'd be enticing in a way, you know, it loses the allure when you've done it uh, 365 days out of the year, no matter what the weather <laughs> yeah. is. I'm yep. curious. You, you mentioned uh, that the, you saw the Western States profile and you, and you saw the Boston Marathon profile. And I know you spent time in uh, Nashville, Indiana. Was there ever any thought of trying to gain admittance to the Barkley Marathon, which is also in Tennessee, or Barkley Ultra, which is the 100-mile run that, to the best of my knowledge, less than five people have completed? Yeah, um, I've, 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 uh, I'm very familiar with it. I know there's something on Netflix about it too, which I probably should watch at some point. Uh, my friends keep telling me I should try it too because I – I have this uh, kind of a sick, twisted fantasy. I really want to like wind up broken and just like beaten in the middle of the woods and like having to dig as deep as I can just to push on and like move forward. And it sounds messed up, but um, the Barkley sounds like something that could probably deliver that. That being said, from what I understand, it's an invite only type thing. And I, I do not really fit in the ultra crowd per se. Um, I kind of, I'm not a runner. I, I do run, but I'm not a runner. It's just one thing I like to kind of wake up and whimsically do. And um, so I don't really, I'm, I'm not very well known in that community, even though I've gone out and done my runs, you know. I would say from what I've read, I am not nearly at the level to be able to qualify for it. But from what I've read, part of it is the application fee or the application essay that you have to write. So you, you may surprise yourself if you ever get to that point. I know I've often <laughs> said, if I ever got free time and I didn't have to work as much, my goal would be to do one lap of it and then just drop out. So I don't want to be bent and broken. <laughs> I just want to say, okay, I did one lap. That was the hardest thing I've ever done. I'm done. Yeah. I, I mean, I would be thrilled that it, uh, it's something that does just the fact that so few people have completed it is something that really entices me. Like, you know, people ask me all the time, like, why don't I do like tough mutters and all the obstacle courses things? And it just, I have no desire in the sense that thousands of people do this and they complete it. And it's not that challenge. It's not that it's not challenging. It's just, it's a very common thing. It doesn't really set you apart. And my interest has always been in how can I be such a defined athlete where I'm doing um, kind of like the semi-pro levels of a bunch of different things. So not just good at running, but also good in the strength training side of it too. Um, just kind of a good cross, uh, cross athlete in general has always been my main focus. So, And I'm curious, you ran the marathon, I think you said two days before you left for basic training. When you finished the marathon, was it one of those things, oh, that wasn't so bad, I'd like to do it again, and you were able to continue it after basic training, or was it kind of you concentrated on your military career for a while, and then once you got a little more settled in the military career, you got back to the running and other physical activities not related specifically to your job in the military? 
You know, I actually, I really do not like running. Um, and so when I got done doing that, I was like, you know what? That was stupid. I don't know why I did that. Um, it was, it was a good experience, but I, I wasn't a big fan. And, you know, the military ran a lot, but what kind of got me back into running, believe it or not, and it's kind of weird. I mean, think about this, but when I was a team leader, I was uh, taking one of my soldiers out for a run one morning and he was just really sandbagging and there's no reason for it. And I was kind of like, Hey man, look, there's a stop sign on a few hundred meters in front of us. I was like, I'm going to keep my pace. You just got to get caught back up to me at the time we get that stop sign. If you don't, we're going to run 10 miles a day, every single day of the week for the rest of the week. And this was a Monday. And sure enough, he didn't do it. And I was, I was pissed myself. I'm like, son of a gun. Like now I have to do this too, you know? And you know, so we ran 10 miles every single day that week. So total 50, uh, the last day pretty much broke him. Uh, he, he ended up pulling something or he, he didn't finish. He got hurt, but after doing that, it kind of became a challenge for me. Like, I want to be able to wake up any day of the week and just go out and run a marathon. And so I kind of established a base strength to be able to do that. And um, then getting out of the military, uh, you know, I really didn't run that much out of the military. And at some point, it was one of the things where I just woke up one day and I was like, I forgot about this 100-miler thing. I was like, you know what? I, I want to do a 100-miler. It's been on my list of, like, big goals. And I'm not getting any younger. And so I looked into it, learned I had to qualify, and and that's kind of what got me back into running. And um, even after doing that, so I, I did my first 50-miler to qualify and actually did it surprisingly well. I came in second place in my uh, uh, division. And um, uh, there's there's kind of an odd story with that, but we won't have to go down that road. But um, uh, long story short, the, the one person I had that was there to help me with crew, there's one stop I needed him at. He was not there. And pretty much what fueled me this entire race was thinking I'm going to cross the finish line and punch this guy in the face. He had one job and I was so mad. And the anger just was like, I can't wait to get there and freaking him in the face. And by the time I got there, I was so exhausted. I had no anger left in me, but, um, but you know, I did that. I, so I qualified for uh, the Pine de Palm 100 and, um, went out and ran that and, that was, that was, that was miserable. It was beautiful. Um, it was 20,000 feet of elevation gain, 20,000 feet of elevation loss. Everyone there is like, this is a very brutal course. And, um, like when I got to mile 75, my right leg was pretty much shot. So I pretty much had to run a marathon on one leg, not to mention I had to go up and down a big mountain in this time period. And so I was, uh, that, that was rough. And I got done with that and I really had no desire to run. And then the next year, um, just out of curiosity, I was kind of like, you know, I wonder if I could just get up and do a 50 miler, you know, just kind of like any day of the week type thing. And I found a 50 miler up in Wisconsin. And so I signed up for it. And in my training, I'd only ran like, you know, I, I kind of wrote about my thing. I'd only ran up the most distance I ran before this 50 mile was 10 miles. And in between there, I'd only ran a handful of times from the last, from the hundred miler to there. And so then doing this 50 miler with absolutely zero training, um, that really hurt. That hurt worse than the 100 miler. That was miserable. And then after that, um, it, it kind of became not necessarily about running, but each year I wanted to do one thing that was just exceptionally challenging to me. Um, and that people would kind of hear me like, what are you doing, you know? And um, anyway, so I've been very active doing these different challenges. And then with the nonprofit, we built, a, we built an ultra marathon team. And Sam had kind of been bugging me about this hundred miler and uh, it just kind of became, you know what, like that's, I want to be able to consistently do that, you know? And um, so here I am. And the fact that Sam's never done one before is extreme motivation for me. Like what really makes me get excited about fitness and activity is being part of someone else's first experience and doing something that is way beyond what they normally do. Um, and being able to contribute to that or help motivate, um, like that to me is what matters more than anything, you know? So we're talking with Justin Matichek. He is the founder of veterans adventure group. I'm curious about how the idea for VAG came in, because I know from what you've described, you sound a lot like quite a few endurance athletes that I've known and you're a little bit younger than some of them and some of them just get so fo focused on their individual goals you know they do a marathon they do a hundred miler can i do a hundred miler every month you know can i do something longer than that and you've taken something like that and channeled your interest and said you know i want to have a nonprofit. so how did the idea behind veterans adventure group 
come about? Was this something you were thinking about while you were in the military or after you got out? Yeah. So actually, um, let's see, it was back in 2010. I was on my second tour in Afghanistan, getting ready to go to the military. And I had a job lined up with Triple Canopy doing private security contracting, which for doing what I did in the military, is pretty much the only civilian equivalent. And I was actually thrilled. I was going to come back home. I wasn't even going to go home to like see my family. I was going to go right to the training program and go straight back to Afghanistan. And but I wasn't really thrilled about it in the sense that I never joined the military for the money. And I was going to be doing a job where I began to pay a large sum of money. And it's not come over there fixing helicopters. You know, you're over there uh, kind of pulling a trigger. And that's not something that really sat morally right with me. And so I wasn't really sure what I want to do. And September 18th, 2010, there's election day in Afghanistan. And excuse me, I was in the lead vehicle in this convoy and our vehicle hit an IED. And the driver ended up losing his leg. And when uh, I was on site there, I was helping the medic keep him conscious and holding C-spine for the driver. And the, yeah, I didn't know the driver too well at this point. I just recently got reassigned to this different unit. And uh, so, and part of the process of keeping someone conscious, you just ask them all these questions. And it turned out he was from Washington. I have no idea where it came from, but for some reason I made the connection with Washington and Mount Rainier. And we made a deal that day that we'd, uh, that we climbed Mount Rainier together when he got back. And he didn't know he had lost his leg at this point. He, um, he couldn't feel his lower body from what I understand. And so he made this promise and that just hit me like, you know, if I can do anything with my life, I want to take guys at this that, you know, they come back and everyone feels sorry for them and views them as broken and disabled. And I want to help them do amazing feats that people with two legs would be like, Oh my God, you're doing what, you know? And that's kind of where the idea of the nonprofit came about. So I canceled my uh, employment opportunity with Triple Canopy and I'm getting my personal training certificate did as much as I could overseas with a focus on going and working with these wounded guys. And then I got out of the, got out of the military and I went through a really rough time getting out of the military and um, everyone was quick to say, oh, you know, PTSD you should go to the VA. And, you know, the reality of it was like, it's not what happened overseas that bothered me. It's about what I lost when I came back home. And it was that lack of a team and lack of a purpose. And in this time, I was researching a lot of suicides, and I came across a suicide by another veteran named Justin. And reading this guy's obituary was like reading my own. And it just kind of sent chills down my spine. And um, all I could think was, you know, there are so many veterans out there just like me that don't have any kind of mental or medical diagnosis from the VA. And there's no nonprofits out there that work with us. Um, because it's not sexy work because we aren't the wounded guys that look good on TV and we, you can't exploit us like you can someone that's sitting in a wheelchair, you know? And um, I did come across one nonprofit that worked with any veteran who had been deployed. And I did some stuff with them and I won't mention who they are. A great nonprofit, but kind of like I was saying earlier, they would do these retreats. You do one week and you go out and do something awesome. And you got guys from all over the country you're working with. And then after that, you go back home and well, it's back to the same old daily grind. And my thought was like, you know, I miss that teamwork. I miss that purpose. How can I bring that back into my day-to-day life? And in this moment of just being completely kind of, I don't want to say hopeless, but really miserable, I got into mountain biking and that kind of changed my perspective. And I found that community around mountain biking. And that's where the whole grand master plan for Veterans Adventure Group came up. You know, originally I was trying to work with other nonprofits and that was not uh, that was a very frustrating experience trying to work with other nonprofits for a various list of reasons. So like, screw it. I'll just do my own, you know, and that's kind of where we built into. And um, yeah, I couldn't be more excited to see, you know, four years ago, when we founded this to start with four guys climbing Mount Rainier. And um, last year we just took over 30 veterans of Mount Rainier, you know, so in a period of four years, we've, you know, done drastic amount of work. Um. So yeah, I, I think I kind of got off on a little tangent there, but uh, yeah, there's there's a lot there's a lot to how I got started with the Veterans Adventure Group and why we do what we do. So I'm curious if you can think back uh, as far as when the idea started to really gel in your head. Do you remember was it actually while you're on the mountain bike? Because I know I've talked to a number of people said you know and I would include myself in this group. I, I talk to myself sometimes. Some of my best ideas come when I'm moving because I don't know what it is. It's kind of the rhythmic action of whatever it is. It's like, oh, things you don't think about if you're just sitting there. So I'm just curious if that was the case in, in your instance. 
You know, I don't remember specifically when it came to me uh, starting my own thing. I do remember there was one night I was I was kind of in my misery. I sat down at the kitchen table and I made a list of everything bothering me. And I was able to sum that up into the lack of teamwork or the lack of a team and lack of purpose. And that kind of set the foundation for me needing to find a way to bring that back. And then I can't, I don't sure if early, like I never remember like a big aha moment, but um, I do know that even like while I'm in school and stuff, a lot of times when I study, I go and I, I go for a run with my flashcards or I go to the gym and in between sets, I look at my flashcards and it's been a surprisingly extremely effective way for me to study. Or if I get stuck on a math problem, I go out and I go for a run and like suddenly I come back and I, I look at it from a different perspective and exercise has always been something that's um, increased my ability to think drastically, you know. We're talking with Justin Matichek. He is the founder of Veterans Adventure Group. I think you've given a really good description of uh, how you decided to found the Veterans Adventure Group. I'm curious how veterans find you. I know that there are some large nonprofits and we, we don't need to name call or call some of them out. Uh, but, you know, there's a veteran who maybe is like you. They just got out. They really don't want to go in and do private security work. They know they miss that sense of teamwork, that sense of unity. How would somebody like that come across the Veterans Adventure Group? So Facebook is an easy way to find us, but how we've spread our word is through word of mouth. Um, and that's something I really take a lot of value for in the sense that if someone went through our program and they feel so great about it that they can go back and tell other people and recommend it, that's the best kind of stamp of approval I could ever ask for. And honestly, we don't do much marketing trying to find veterans. We have more veterans reach out to us than we can handle. And, um, yeah, veterans, veterans really come to us. And I, I would argue one thing that we are very unique about and how we do is we don't view veterans as broken and we don't have any kind of stipulation. As long as you serve with an honorable discharge, we'll work with you. And we don't come across as a therapeutic group. And um, the big thing that's always been frustrating for me is everyone associates, you know, exercise and activity with therapy. And that's fine. And I'm not saying it's not a therapeutic thing. But why does a veteran going on a mountaineering trip, why does it have to be therapeutical? Why can't it just be they want to go out there and do something amazing? There's nothing, you know, it doesn't mean they're broken or anything like that. And, you know, initially when I first started this, a lot of veterans were like, oh, no, that's, that's not for me. I'm not wounded. You know, I don't have, you know, PTSD or anything. And it's like, no, man, it's, it's for you. It's for all of us. And just because you don't have these issues doesn't mean you're not a veteran. It doesn't mean you aren't someone that wants to serve. It doesn't mean you don't miss having that team and that purpose that you had in the military. And so I think that approach has made it very easy for veterans to want to approach us, knowing that if they approach us, it's not going to be us sitting there talking, how, hey, we're going to heal you or make you better. It's, hey, man, you want to do awesome shit? We're going to help you do awesome shit. That's, and sorry for the custom there, but that's just the reality of it, is we want to help veterans get out there and be badasses again, you know? And one could almost argue it's almost, for some of them, an adjunct of therapy. They may be undergoing therapy or getting treatment for some, for some problem they have. And this is kind of you're reminding them, hey, maybe you have these problems, but it doesn't mean you can't do awesome things and have fun and enjoy life again. And that's, that's exactly true. And we've had a lot of veterans that um, – there's one veteran, I won't go through names, but he went in our skydiving program. When I first met him, you could barely hold the conversation with him. He was so paranoid, um, just not – not in queue with what was going on. And he was being treated for PTSD under a lot of medication. And for our skydiving program, instead of just like taking people on a tandem, we actually get them licensed to skydive and get them gear to help them keep jumping. And, you know, he did this, this is about three years ago when we went through our program. He is a, such a different person today. He's off his medications. Um, he still sees a therapist, but very, not nearly in the same uh, frequency as he used to. And he's just, it's crazy how something so simple just completely brought out a whole different side of this veteran. And it's, it's stuff like that, that really, um, really kind of hits me in the feels because, you know, it's, it's kind of crazy to realize when uh, you take a step back and was like, you've started something that has really actually changing people's lives in a way. And that's just one I know about, you know, um, there's other veterans who their, their spouse have, have reached out to me um, saying like, Hey, that's this guy has went out and did this with you guys. Like he's, he's doing so much better. He's just in a completely different space. And the fact that we could do all that. And at no point was I, we were, we thought like, Hey man, you're broken and we're going to help you. 
It's simply a matter of like, we, we know you're already amazing. We know you're awesome. We're just going to put you back in the environment that brings back out the best version of yourself, you know? I know I've, I'm not a uh, former military, but I think you could make the argument that it doesn't matter whether you're former military, active military, non-military, all of us have our demons or our problems, some worse than others. And there's always a tendency to focus on those things and not focus on the stuff, which as you said, do cool shit. Exactly. Yeah. You know, I mean, and I will say like one thing I do love about ultras is I like, I call when I do my ultras in my mind, um, I just say I'm going to battle with my demons, you know, because you know, in the day to day, it's easy to kind of tuck that stuff away in the back of your brain, but when you're so exhausted and just beat, those things that haunt you come back to you. And it's, I mean, I, I thoroughly have known to be running on the trail, bawling my eyes out thing like, you know, and it is a process, but, um, and yeah, whether you're a veteran or civilian, I think, you know, even though the experiences that get us there may be different, the outcome and the, the feelings that we have are very similar. And I, I don't think it's healthy to create a divide between veterans and civilians. I think we both are dealing with the same emotions, just with a different process that got us experiencing that in the first place, you know? Um, Veterans Adventure Group, I know from the bio that you filled out and from what Sam told me, you do a variety of activities. How do you come up with the activities that you offer for veterans? So I know you've mentioned Rainier. I know you and Sam are doing a a hundred miler after skydiving out of a, out of an airplane. Is this something the veterans come to you or you develop a program and then you try to fit the veterans that have contacted you into these particular activities? It's kind of both. So a lot of it does come from veterans that come to us. We have a lot of veterans that reach out, you know, from an area and they're like, Hey, I really want to learn how to do this. And at that point we kind of, you know, all right, let's find a few other people in your area that also want to learn how to do it. And then we'll build a team around that, you know? And that's, that's one way that we come up with this stuff. Um, other ways, it's just through connections that I have. You know, like we had one guy who he applied for the skydiving team. And after going through the interview and stuff, he's like, you know, I, I don't think this is really for me. However, he now run, runs a drag racing team for us, which is awesome, you know, um, which is, is kind of cool because that's a whole other level where you, know, you got veterans who may not be physically capable of some of this extreme stuff but they love to sit back and drink beer and crank wrenches, you know, and that's awesome. That, that builds that purpose and community because you know, everything they do to that car matters when they run it down that strip, you know? And, you know, so yeah, but ultimately a lot of it veterans come to us and some of it is stuff that is unique to an area. So like out here in Salt Lake city, I'm working with a company out here to get a, a paragliding program going, you know, and the cool thing there is we can also send, we just uh, recently brought in an adaptive component which does like a, you know, ski clinics for uh, guys in wheelchairs, um, fishing trips, boating trips, they even have a wakeboard for wheelchair bound veterans, which is pretty awesome. Um, but you know, we can do paragliding with guys in wheelchairs too. And it's, um, yeah. So we just kind of think of different things that are enticing. And I, I happen to have a very big network of veterans and they're always like, Hey, when are you going to start offering this or that? And so when, when people ask about it, I figure out a way that we can make it happen and try to find people in the industry that will support it. So. I'm curious with uh, the various veterans that do it. I know one of the things you do is you equip them so they, if it's an activity that they really not necessarily buy into, but they really enjoy, they have the skills to do it afterwards. I know you mentioned, for example, with the skydiving, you get them licensed to do it rather than saying, hey, you're going to climb on me and, and skydive down with me. Was that, a, was that a conscious choice based on experiences from talking to past veterans or seeing what other nonprofits have done? Or is this just something that kind of in your mind is like, you know, this is what I should do? Yeah. So for one, um, most nonprofits, when it comes to skydiving, for example, just want to throw you out a plane. It's that one-time experience. It's not really what we, we are. We do offer it. Um, we have a Remy jump program for like older veterans who are not interested or wounded veterans who can't actually skydive solo. So we do offer that. Um, but a lot of it comes into, you know, veterans want to do this stuff, but most of these extreme sports are, they have a barrier cost. It costs a lot to get into, you know, skydiving is not cheap. It's 1500 bucks for AFF, another grand to get to your A license. So at 2,500, just to get to your A license. And then your rig, you're looking about five grand right there. So most veterans don't have $7,500 sitting around. Um, or most people in general don't, you know? And so if we can help with that barrier cost to get people through that, after that skydiving is pretty cheap. Once you have your gear, it only costs me about 27, 30 bucks to jump you know? And so at that point it becomes very affordable. Um, same with mountaineering and so forth too. It's just getting the gear to begin. A lot of people don't know where to start and it's a big investment. So if we can take away that cost, 
so and and give you the people to keep doing that with i i have no problems flying veterans with whatever gear we can and I'm curious, I know you mentioned with mountaineering, is it only Rainier that you do or are you looking at other mountains or have you done other mountains also? So Rainier is like our flagship climb. That's when we, we bring out tons of veterans. We make a big deal of it. Uh, we do do Mount Adams and Mount Hood. And we are really excited for 2020. We're offering Denali as a nonprofit program. And I actually, so one of the guys that's been helping with our mountaineering program, he, him and I went out and climbed Denali this last May. That was my big feat for the year. And um, that's kind of a a kind of a comical story in a sense there too, and a little tangent, but we get out there in Denali and um, there's just two of us and we're moving pretty good. And most people do about 21 days to uh, a month on Denali. And we only had, we had 16 days that we had to be off the mountain. And so you fly out there and you land 16 days later, like we had to be leaving no matter what. So we're already kind of behind time-wise. we got out there, we got to our base camp at 14,000 feet and we felt really good. We got there on day, day four. And so we said like, we'd take one rest day and there's a weather window. So we're like, you know what? Like, why don't we try to climb this mountain on day six? And we got the weather window and like, we didn't want to be out there. Like, um, you know, as much as people like to like talk about how great experience, mountaineering really sucks. You know, um, you're getting fried in the middle of like, when you're in the sun, you're literally sweating, you're like crazy. And as soon as the sun disappears, you're freezing. And it's, it's very hard to like rationalize that you're so hot on the middle of a glacier. But so we tried to summit on day six and everything was going great, but there was a storm forecast to come in that night. And the storm kind of came in early and we were, we were above, let's see, we would be just shy of, we're about 19,000 feet up. And our, our camp was back at 14,000 feet. The storm came in. And there's one group ahead of us. They decided to turn around. At this point, there were the only two people on the mountain above, you know, 17,000 feet, the last base camp. And when the weather's bad, no one comes to get you. Like, you're out there. And so we decided, like, all right, we should probably turn around. And we turn around, and we're heading back down. And at this point, our goggles are all iced up. We can't see. And things just really took a turn for the worse. And we finally got back down to a high camp at 17,000 feet. But we still had to go to 14. But we had a minute to kind of catch our breath. And the end of the day was about there. And at this point, we had been going for about 18 hours. I'd only drank a half Nalgene bottle of water. The rest of it was frozen. I hadn't eaten anything all day. And so we we're extremely just deprived of all of our nutrition or nutrients, water. And uh, we hadn't slept much either. And um, ended up spending nearly 26 hours from when we stepped off till I got back to our camp at 14,000 feet. But there's a section where we have to go down. It's called the head wall and there's these fixed ropes and my descending device ended up freezing up and I'm stuck on this rope. And my partner, Austin, uh, he was, he was equally as miserable. He was on a different rope and was able to get down faster. And so I kind of was like, look, man, go back to camp. There's no point in him, you know, getting hypothermia or frostbite waiting on me, you know, and I'm just hanging on this rope against this ice wall. thinking like I, someone's got to come and get me. like, and no one's going to come get me till the morning. So I'm just thinking like, I'm going to have to freeze here for the next eight hours until someone realizes that there's some dude hanging from this rope up there. And, uh, finally, slowly, finally get off this rope. And I am just completely miserable. And, um, I had some snow blindness from earlier because when my goggles froze up, I kind of had to lift my goggles up and I'm walking on this really steep hill and there's this big crevasse that I have to jump over. And I couldn't see the other side of the crevasse. I just, I knew it was at that wide. So I, I leap across this crevasse, end up tumbling halfway down, you know, get a cramp on stuck in my butt. It was just miserable. And I kind of, you know, finally pop back up covering snow. And it was, it was by far one of like the top three hardest moments in my life, just to take another step. And I would walk a few steps and sit down. And all I could think about is how much I just wanted to face plant in the snow and someone will find me at some point, you know? Um, and finally got back to camp and uh, ended up getting a horrible infection in my leg, got extremely sick. Um, but And we ended up uh, recovering and uh, went back and summited on day 11, which that in itself, most people do one summit attempt. And for us to do two summit attempts, one of them being from 14,000 feet, people were kind of looking at us like, what you guys are, what's wrong with you, you know? Um, we did it not to mention I have this infection and like I am extremely sick this entire time. But I will say like, that day six, like that's what I remember about that climb, just because I, I love that 
it's hard to explain in the moment it's miserable but looking back like it literally just took everything in my body to take another step and then one more step and you just keep going and going and like there's something so addicting about being so vulnerable like that you know I know that there are some people who classify levels of fun and I think they class, they classify the highest level of fun of when you're absolutely miserable, which you look back and you say, Oh, that was a really good time. I really enjoyed that. <laughs> so you may not yeah. have enjoyed it in the moment, but now looking back, it's like, Oh, that was pretty cool. Yeah, it was quite the time, but yeah, and not to, not to get too sidetracked from the question, but yeah, so we're bringing Denali in for 2020 for the nonprofit, which we're thrilled about. We got nine veterans are taking up for that. And then we're also, we're constantly adding peaks. We got interest in El Dorado Peak and the Grand Teton. Um, so as long as I can find some people to help me lead these, we'll be having a busy summer climbing these mountains. So. And I know you mentioned that you you and uh, my friend Sam Brassfield are doing a 100 miler. Is one of the things you do with the veterans, do you train with veterans to run a 100 miler or run ultra races? Or is it more what you think of as the extreme type things that don't, I can't say they don't last as long because Denali would last longer than that. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it, it depends on what the vet, veterans are interested in. On the ultra marathon that's coming up the hundred miler, uh, we are recruiting for other veterans to join us. We did have some initial ones, but one of them ended up getting into law school. So that kind of took her other running. And we got another guy who's not a veteran, but he's a big a supporter of ours. His name is Thor. He's going to be trying to run a hundred milers, uh, the hundred miler while we're doing it, but he's going to be in Minnesota in the middle of winter doing this. Um, so, so I, he has more of a challenge than I could ever even imagine compared to what we're doing there in sunny Florida. Um, but with all this, you know, I, a lot of times with the veterans, I, if I can, I'll build a training program for them and kind of help them with that. If they're local, I'll run with them and as much as I can, like I said, my, I really get my high off of helping other people do amazing things, you know, it's like just knowing Sam is knowing this is his first hundred miler. Um, that is my driving motivation. No matter what happens, I can't be the reason he can't complete it. You know? So I, I, I need to make sure I'm there every step. Like, Hey man, we got this. Um, and you know, but yeah, if Sam, Sam's got a training program he's working on, but with a lot of these other ones, especially mountaineering, um, veterans are constantly asking for training plans and I'm, I'm always writing up plans and helping with nutrition and stuff like that, just to get them on track to understand the stresses they're going to have and how to train appropriately. And do you have veterans who come back and do a different adventure with you every year? Because I know you said your goal is to do one big thing yourself each year. Do you have some veterans that they've done an event and they're like, man, this is, this has changed my life. I want to come back and do one big event with your organization each year. Or is it, one and maybe they go on and develop training programs or develop new lifestyles. So, uh, um, and obviously the veterans in that kind of getting the team side of it, they keep doing this stuff pretty frequently. Uh, in terms of the bigger events, we have a lot of repeat users that can't wait for the next year and they're always out there. I have yet to find anybody who's probably stupid enough as a better response to try to do the same stuff I do every year. I, I call it like, I have like my tag team, like, I have my veterans that are big rock climbers, or I shouldn't say veterans, but I have my rock climber friends, I have my running friends, I have my mountaineering friends. And as soon as I'm done with one, I jump into the next one. So like they each just kind of run me ragged. Um, but yeah, I've yet to find someone who is willing to do the various activities with me. Um, like one of them was paddleboarding the entire Mississippi River. Um, like stuff like that. Like it's, you know, the guy that I did that with, you know, he would have no desire to, well, I shouldn't say he, he does want to do a lot of this other stuff. Um, he's just, he's going to, it's going to take him a little bit different training to get there, you know? Um, but yeah, if there's someone out there that wants to try a bunch of different crazy challenges every year, the next one I'm looking for is I really want to cross Antarctica. And I, I told you about that. I had to buy a negative 40 degree sleeping bag to do Denali and I'm pretty burnt because it costs about 800 bucks. And so I'm thinking like, I got to get my use of this. And so I got to do some really cold, long trips. So I think crossing Antarctica is probably in my distant future. Um, and Colin O'Brady did it. And it's kind of like, you know what, like this, this would be a worthy challenge. So I'm curious of these variety of events. Are there any that you've done and completed? And it's like, okay, I'm done with this sort of activity. I've done it. I've checked it off the box. I have no interest in doing this again. You know, I thought running was going to be like that, but, uh, it has a sneak way of creeping up on me like, oh, you know, that was miserable, but maybe it would be worth another shot. Uh, the Mississippi River thing, unfortunately, we had to stop a little bit early because my buddy was injured and she so had to get surgery for that. So, but I cannot wait to get back on the river. Um, you know, the more I do, the more it opens my eyes 
and um, it really just makes me want to do more of it or get more people involved more. Uh, that's really the better way to put it is if I've, after I've done it, the biggest mother is now, how can I find other people that want to do it and help them do it? That's, that's really where it lies. So even though I'm not necessarily thrilled to run another hundred miler, I'm thrilled to be there for Sam as we run a hundred miles together and any other veteran that approaches me about it. It's like, well, hell yeah, I'll do it with you kind of thing, you know? So Moving to Live is with Justin Matichek. He is the founder of Veterans Adventure Group. I like that you mentioned uh, that one of the reasons that you do these things and do the training is because oftentimes for some of these activities, there's a significant outlay of cash before you become equipped to do it. I know that's very common in a a variety of activities. If there's a veteran listening to this or somebody listening who has a friend who's a veteran, I think the question is also going to be, well, you know, if you go and do Denali, I know that's quite expensive. What does it cost a veteran to do this? Or is this something that's sponsored? So we do on the veteran side, we require a $500 deposit. And the main thing there is there's a lot of permits and stuff we have to pull well before the climb. And we just can't have people backing out after we put this money into it. Um, the permit alone is about 400 bucks, not to mention the flights and all the stuff that go into it. So, but most of our trips or stuff, there's, there's usually a deposit of some sort, which goes straight to the trip. It's not something that we profit off or anything like that. Um, and then we sponsor the rest of it, you know? So we're for like Denali, for example, the cost is estimated to come out to about $14,000 find people. Um, now, if you were to go with a guided group, it's almost going to cost, depending on the group, it could cost anywhere from like 6000 to 20000 for one person. So where we kind of get around is, for one, we are not mountaineering guides, and we are not trying to take that role. We, uh, we are happy to lead people on an unguided trip, being that we're familiar with the mountain. Um, so, and then we do have a whole stockpile of gear, so we provide the gear and all that as well. The only thing we don't provide is clothing, just because we can't stock a bunch of different sizes, and everybody's a little bit different. So, we do everything we can to supply them with the gear. In terms of once they get, like, we usually don't cover travel either, only because there again, if we pay for travel and you don't show up, we can't recoup that anyway. So, you show up and we pretty much take the bedroom from there, and there's no more costs associated with it. So Denali is already filled up, but most of our climbs like Rainier, for example, there's a $50 deposit, which goes straight to your permit. And after that, you show up and we get you to our host family's house, which we have the time of our life at. Um, This last year, we had almost 40 veterans going through this uh, house up there. And our host families have been amazing. Um, These are just volunteers that want to support the cause. And... um, yeah, we'll take them up to reprovide all the gear. We have most of the clothing, too, that we can kind of fit and match for people that aren't experienced. And we do a whole school up there, so we train them everything they need to know in terms of, you know, what they need to know to climb this particular mountain and so forth. Um, but, yeah, so veterans that are interested, you know, as long as, you're, as long as you're willing to step up to the plate and pay a little bit to get to where you need to go, we'll make it happen from there. But there is there does need to be some sort of a buy-in or commitment from the veteran that they really want to do this. Um, Unfortunately, there's a lot of veterans out there that's just looking for free stuff. And there's a lot of veterans that um, are quick to, it, it can be, this is a very sensitive subject, but there's a term called kind of veteran entitlement. And a lot of veterans expect everything to be free for them. And that's not true. If you really want to get out there and climb mountains, you should be willing to pull some weight. Um, if you want to go out there and learn how to kiteboard, you should be willing to make some sacrifices to do that. And that doesn't necessarily need to be you know, financial, but it can be helping to volunteer for other things and so forth too. Um, and I've just, I've really learned in my experience, you know, if you, if you can't find 50 bucks to go out and put the deposit on the climb out right here, your priority should not be climbing a mountain at that point, you know? Um, so, so you're, giving, kind of you're giving them a helping hand, not a free gift. Exactly. We're talking with Justin uh, Matichek of Veterans and Venture Group. I think the other thing that I'm very interested in, because I know you mentioned this, uh, that when you left the military, you didn't have any visible scars. You weren't missing limbs. You hadn't uh, had serious injuries, like physical injuries like that. Are there veterans who contact you who have these injuries, maybe limb losses or other severe injuries where you look at it and say, you know, I just don't think they can do what they uh, this particular trip, or has that not arisen yet? So we have a lot of veterans that do have some uh, other sort of um, complications that may come up. However, we're very determined to find a way to make it work. Uh, for example, we have a veteran who's in a wheelchair 
who we're working on getting their class A skydiving license. They actually used to skydive in the past and then they got injured and we're working on getting them back out there. You know, there's there, where there's a will is a way and we're going to figure it out. Um, it also, right now I'm currently studying biomedical engineering and part of that goes into when we come into these issues, there's, there's, there's an easy sidetrack of an example here is my buddy, when he was climbing Mount Rainier with us, um, his leg fell off multiple times. And when your legs falling off, you know, 13,000 feet up on a glacier and you're all roped up, that's, that's not a good spot for your leg to be falling off, you know? And all I can think is there's gotta be a better way. Uh, we had another issue with caving, um, getting people out of these caves, they have to ascend up the rope. And a guy with a prosthetic leg was having some issues and he's able to make it work, but there's gotta be a better way. Um, but if, if we have yet to completely deny someone the ability to do something, um, honestly, if a guy in a wheelchair, you know, wanted to climb out near with us, we'd probably find a way to put him in a pack and we'd haul him off if it came down to it. We're pretty determined. Um, it, we, but we have yet to reject someone based off an injury. However, if, if for some reason we truly just cannot do it because of safety reasons, we're going to do everything we can to find other avenues that they could consistently do. Again, this really is centered, you know, there is an aspect of the experience there, but this really is centered around finding a long-term thing that veterans capable of doing, you know, independently of the nonprofit. So we've had the good fortune to talk to Justin Matatech of Veterans Adventure Group. He talks about uh, giving veterans the tools to not only do a single time of an extreme adventure, but the tools to recognize that this is something that's actually fun and can be a regular part of their life. Uh, I think it's really great that he identifies the fact that he's not doing therapy, although we talked a little bit about the fact that as an adjunct, this can potentially benefit therapy or just make people understand that whatever sort of movement, whether it's skydiving, climbing mountains, uh, running in the woods, it has the opportunity to really enhance the quality of life. Uh, Justin, I want to thank you for taking time to talk to Moving to Live. I know that Sam will probably have some great stories to tell you on the 100-mile runs, <laughs> although you've probably heard some of them already with some of your runs that you did when you were both living in Nashville. Yeah, yeah, we had a lot of fun runs, and we talked about all sorts of interesting stuff. So, and I appreciate you having me on the show here. So. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of Moving to Live. Make sure you check out the show notes for contact information for our latest guest, as well as links about all the things we talked about. Intro and exit music is Traveling Light by Jason Shaw. You can subscribe to Moving to Live on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play, and be notified about new episode releases. Have any questions, comments, or suggestions? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com connect with us on Twitter or Instagram, both underscore MOV number two LIV. Please tell your friends about moving to live. It's a go-to place for information for movement and exercise professionals and amateur aficionados who understand that movement is part of what makes your life complete. Until next week, keep on moving.